0: I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. Uh, David, you got to talk to, I believe, the only Nobel laureate who's (sighs) nominated for an Oscar this year. This particular Um, year. (laughs) Maybe not the first. We should go back and look it up to see if other Nobel laureates have been Oscar nominees. But Katsuo Ishiguro certainly is in a class of his own this year. He's nominated as a screenwriter of living. He seems like an incredibly smart person. And from what I hear, a lovely person to talk to.
2: A lovely person to talk to who somehow is dealing with imposter syndrome this <laughs> award season.
0: Oh, God, there's no hope for the rest of us.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but he is a first-time Oscar nominee. He has had kind of a rocky screenwriting career. Uh, and so this was a project he really initiated. He thought of Bill Nye for the role before he wrote it. He was the one who pitched it to him, and a really lovely experience came out of that um, that led to an Oscar nomination. And yes, he says he is very humbled to be in the company of Top Gun Maverick screenwriters <laughs> and, and Sarah Pauli and people who have, who have been very successfully doing this for a number of years now.
0: I imagine he's having a really good time out there. Like, I think I saw him in the uh, the Oscar luncheon photos. And, you know, you just imagine all of these people like Sarah Polly coming up to him and, you know, admiring him. That sounds like a, a fun ride for someone who's, you know, had, to, had such a long career elsewhere already.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, having observed this campaign a little bit, I moderated a panel with him, Bill Nye, and uh, Oliver Hermanis, the film's director, uh, back in phase one. And you could tell that these three were... An, is this oddly delightful trio who loved, you know, going from <laughs> event to event together. They each had their kind of dynamic in a conversation where Ishiguro was very much the talker of the group, um, and and I think he just really embraced it. His last uh, screenplay was *The White Countess*, um, which was really um, shrouded in a lot of tragedy. It was the last Merchant Ivory film before Ismail Merchant died. Mm. Natasha Richardson also passed around that movie. So it it's and it, the movie itself was not very well received, and he blames himself for that, as he says in our interview. So it's hmm. a nice opportunity for him, I think, here to bring things a little bit full circle for him.
0: Yeah, it's been such a, a lovely run for living from beginning to end, really. Um, so let's hear more about it in your conversation with Katsu Ishiguro.
2: Let's start by talking about uh, the road to this nomination for you. This was a small movie that premiered at Sundance well over uh, a year ago by now. How did you experience its journey, especially as the writer, who's with this project, its, it's genesis really began with you. Um, how do you? How do you look back on that whole, this whole ride?
1: Well, for a long time, it was just me and um, Stephen Woody, the producer. Um, we were just working on this project, and the pandemic came along. Um, I'd finished most of the screenplay before the pandemic. Oliver Hermanus came on the project as director, but everything just came to a standstill because of the pandemic. And we um, I don't know how it was where you were, but at that time here in Britain, we were actually literally locked down. We were allowed to go outside for one hour per day. Uh, Oliver was in South Africa. And perhaps because of this enforced lockdown, um, we probably spent far more time actually discussing the project, discussing different ways to do every scene, um, we had nothing much else to do. So we spent a lot of time just on Zoom uh, talking, and I would prepare little variations on, on little scenes um, when we had an idea. And then we'll meet again the next day and we'll say, oh, that doesn't really work. Let's go back to what we had before. And, and uh, so so for a lot of the time, that, that, that was the experience for me when I started to collaborate with Oliver. And then, you know, once the film was shown at Sundance, well, I, I was kind of out of that a little bit. And then I joined the kind of traveling road show at, at Venice in September. And, you know, I've been part of it ever since. You know, I went to San Sebastian uh, London Film Festival. I went to L.A. You know, three or four times, to New York, to New York. I've been pursuing this film and uh, and you know trying to be helpful whenever I can <laughs> uh, pop up and say something uh, uh, interesting and uh, uh, but uh, yeah it, it's, it's so so as far as the actual filmmaking part of it that that's the trajectory for me um, you know it, it's been pretty awesome watching Bill Nye's performance on the film um, come together. And I think Oliver Hermanos has done a terrific job um but for me, you know i mean I'm not a part of this filmmaking community right. that you know so well david you know i mean <laughs> uh, and and i'm I'm aware from my last few visits to los angeles that it it is a it is a community it's a very tight knit in many ways you know a very supportive community they work together I'm from outside of that um mm-hmm. I have to say it you know there's a part of me that feels feels I'm an imposter being mm. you know becoming an academy award nominee when so many incredibly talented screenwriters um and other filmmakers you know have been working for decades and have not received such an accolade um and so yeah part of me feels like oh yes you know that this kind of fell on me i mean is this hmm. right on the other hand, I mean, <laughs> in my defense, <laughs> I have to say, look, I, my trajectory is, is a different one. You know, it's not a typical one.
2: Yeah.
1: But I've been thinking about stories for about 45 years, every single day. You know, I, over pieces of paper, I've, I've, been, I've been trying to figure out the stories I want to tell, you know, why certain stories may be more important to tell than others. You know, what is a responsible way to tell a story? What is a what is a good way to evoke emotion in people, and what is a bad way? Um, you know, what am I trying to say, just as an individual? You know, th- these are things that I wrestle with every day. You know, even when I'm not supposed to be working, you know, my my mind just goes to these things, and and so for me, there's a natural progression. You know, it's it's an incredible honor to get, get an Academy Award nomination. Now, yeah, I've received other things in the past. I've received the Nobel Prize in Literature. I've received mm-hmm. Book Awards, like the Booker Prize. This seems to me another step on that journey. I mm. don't think of it as something different. I don't think of it as something um, I did when I was moonlighting from my day job. It feels to me like a very logical step in what I've been doing. Um, it's the natural thing that I had to do next you know it's it's it feels to me like it's been a long journey um getting here and uh you know i'm incredibly proud to have this academy award nomination even though as i say I've, my trajectory to it has been very different perhaps to to many of the other nominees
2: mm, indeed i'm i'm curious about it feeling like a kind of logical next step given that you have written screenplays before. This is your first in in quite some time. What, you know, to ask broadly, is your relationship to screenwriting? Uh, I know you had a real relationship with uh, the Kurosawa film, Akiru, on which this is based. But, you know, given the gap and um, the, you know, sheer task of adapting Kurosawa, it feels like it must have been a real, you know, uh, decision uh, for yourself to take that on, given that this is not your the medium for which you are most known, let's say.
1: Well, in the past, I've dabbled with screenplays because I've just been a film fan. And right at the beginning of my writing career, after I finished my first novel in 1983, um, I was able to, to make a living as a as a writer because I was commissioned to write some television screenplays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right at the beginning of my career, I, w- I was kind of thinking, Am, I a, am a, is my life going to be as a screenwriter or is it going to be as a novelist? As it worked out, uh, I was predominantly a novelist. Um, I would say this particular screenplay of, of of living. This is probably the first time I initiated, you know, I fully initiated a screenplay yes. myself. It was something that felt, as I said I said to you, you know, it felt like an, a natural next step for me. But it's also something that I had been wanting to do for so long, you know, and I think you, you know, you ask. What is my relationship to Kurosawa? Well, I mean, it goes back a long way. You know, I, I was a I was a Japanese boy growing up in England. I knew no other Japanese kids or really no other Japanese people apart from my parents in that part of England. It was very difficult to see any Japanese movies or indeed read any Japanese books. I mean, you know, I'm going back to the 1960s here. Yeah, And so the Kurosawa films and two or three films by Ozu they were the only things that seemed to you know, percolate through. Um, they were shown late at night on an arty channel on the BBC, and I watched those. I think I was as young as eleven or something like this. I, but they meant a whole lot to me. Um, not so much because I thought, "Oh, here, here are people who look like me." I mean, I thought I was actually looking into the past, you know, the childhood that I had left behind. And also, I thought I was actually peeking into the life I might have had had I not left Japan. Hmm. Uh, so they made a huge impact on me. But of all those films, and they, they, they all meant a lot to me, but Ikiru, the Kurosawa film Ikiru, actually had a huge impact on me because also as I was growing up, so as a teenager, as a student, that question, you know, so what is important in life? How do you, how do you avoid wasting your life? Now, is life essentially meaningless? Do you just kind of get through it and just die? You know, do, do you just eat and sleep and reproduce and die? Is that it? Or is there, is there some way to push back against that sense of emptiness? Is there a difference between living your life to the full and just passing your time while you're around? You know? These are kind of things I suppose a lot of young people think about. You know? And um, although the, the movie was about an old guy, You know what to me then seemed like an old guy, um, you know, dying of cancer. I mean, uh, it made a big, big impact on me, and I think I I I would say that it had a big impact on the books I subsequently came to write. You know, the 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 vision Mm. of that particular Kurosawa film, and actually some of the Ozu films, that have made such a deep impression on me as a Japanese boy in England. I think that had a lot to do with what I came to write as, as a novelist. And so it, it, felt like a, it felt like a kind of closing of a circle. I really needed to come back to, to Kurosawa. It felt natural to me that it should be a movie, not a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to pay tribute, show my gratitude to the Kurosawa film. And I wanted to convey, I thought, maybe to a, to a, a new audience a new generation, you know, something of what I had felt when I had first experienced the Curacao film. Um, so there was a part of me that just wanted to very faithfully translate or adapt the Kurosawa film. But of course, you know, there's, there, it's a very kind of split personality thing, adaptation. Sure. There's another part of me that said, no, no, you know, that won't do. You know, all right, my, people might say it's a masterpiece. I don't care. You know, mm-hmm. that's going to go. You know, that, that doesn't work. Um, I don't like that tone. You know, yeah. that third act is it just drags. You know, I mean, there, there's a, and of course, as a egotistical, you know, artist, usually used to getting my own way as a novelist. Yeah, I had a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff, my personal stuff that I wanted to bring to the material. So it, it, it was a, so it was all those things that went into, into this living thing. And um, I was very fortunate in that I, you know, I, I suggested it to, to n- not only to Stephen Woody, the producer, but, but also to Bill Nye, um, because he was my gateway into this project. When I saw Bill Nye in the main part, it all fell into place for me. I, in some ways, he inspired this particular screenplay. So it wasn't just written for him. It, it, was, kind of, it, it was kind of provoked by his career and his presence.
2: I was struck by many of the alterations uh, from the original to this version. It's very much its own thing while very much in the spirit of Akiru. Um, and I, I wonder if there were was any particular choice that you you wrestled with in terms of that split personality between um, wanting to honor this Original material, honor how it made you feel, and bringing your own voice as an artist to it. Like, where did that perhaps create some internal tension?
1: Well, I think, I think my my feeling that this film had to be about Bill Nye, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that or he had to be in that main part. That that was a crucial part for me of how our film would differ from the original Kurosawa because it was a question of tone. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not exactly a criticism of the original Kurosawa film. Maybe it's a question of taste. But I always thought about that original Kurosawa. I always wondered how it would have been had a different director made that script. Uh, Kurosawa is a great action director. Um, I think, yes, he made that film, Ikiru, in between Rashomon and Seven Samurai. Um, he's, he's, an, he's an action director. And I always wondered, what would that film have been like had it been directed by Ozu or one of those great home drama directors? Shomengeki, it's called. that's a genre in Japan. Uh, these domestic, quiet, domestic, understated dramas. And I always wondered, what would, it, what would that movie have been like with a different main actor? Somebody who didn't obviously show his emotions so much. Um, who didn't go around quite so mournful, um, who would be more stoic, who would hide behind, who would hide his fear behind irony and humor. Um, and I, I, I suppose in the word, you know, somebody who would approach in a kind of English way, you know. Um, <laughs> and so the the idea of Bill Nye. you see, I always thought, I, I don't know if you know this actor, David Chishu um, Ryu, who is Ozu's main actor in his late films, yeah, in Tokyo Story. He's he's the father, for instance. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, a lot of people might know him as the as the father figure in in Tokyo Story sure. and a lot of the later. I always thought, I always had this longing to see that film with Chishu Ryu in the main part, mm. and it struck me that actually Bill Nye is a kind of latter day English. Chishu Ryu, Hmm. very similar acting style, very hard to put your finger on why he has this enormous emotional impact because it's not a demonstrative style. There's always a kind of a smile not far away from his expression, but you can, you can, you sense a huge, huge depth, all these layers underneath, you know? Um, And so I thought, well, if we can build it around a performance like that, we would have a film with a slightly different tone. Um, And and so that for me was the big difference. The other thing was I wanted our film to be more optimistic. I I think when Kurosawa was making that film, when he was writing that film with his two great collaborators, Hashimoto and Oguni, they didn't know um, which way the world, which way Japan was going to go. This would have been 1949, you just, Four years, five years after yeah. the end of the Second World War. You know, a whole of Japanese society, not just physically smashed up, but, you know, with, with atomic bombs on it. But it, all the values that they had, they now don't believe in. You know, they don't know whether they're going to eco- economically recover. So I think the Kurosawa film is has a lot of pessimism. It's, it's fraught with doubt. Um about the ability of this generation to put itself out of the mire. Um, it felt to me that we today have the luxury of hindsight. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something to celebrate about the post-war era, both in terms of Japan and in terms of England. You know, I, I think great, stable, liberal democracies were built after the war. and And a fairer society was built, I think, both in Japan and in England. And, you know, I have tremendous respect for that generation that came through the war. And then in really difficult, poverty-stricken, hungry circumstances, managed to build these great societies that, that, you know, Japan and Britain have remained kind of bedrocks of of the liberal democratic world. And uh, so I, I felt, you know, cynicism and pessimism wasn't warranted. So I wanted a sense of a a new new younger generation that would inherit something. And I wanted a sense of optimism at, in, in our film.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and I think you absolutely achieved that. Um, speaking of benefits of hindsight, I, I, I'm curious how you look back on your last screenplay, which was produced for the screen, uh, which I believe was The White Countess, uh, which is a lesser remembered, let's say, a Merchant Ivory film. Because that, that's an interesting period to me because I believe that movie came out the same year that Never Let Me Go, Your Novel was published, which, of course, was very heralded. How do you remember that time and those sort of dual experiences?
1: Well, um, I think I have to take a lot of the blame for why The White Countess wasn't wasn't a better movie. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I think it's beautifully shot, Um by uh, by by James Ivory. Um, the circumstances were difficult. I mean, it, it, it was shot in China at a time when uh, Western film crews didn't didn't really go to China to shoot, and there were all kinds of cultural difficulties uh, and misunderstandings. Um, it was a it was also a sad production in that Ismail Merchant died in post production, the That's producer right. of, of many years. And actually, subsequently, Natasha Richardson, the, the, one of our great stars in that film, died of a freak accident not long afterwards. I, it's, it's, a, it's a movie that's got, got a lot of sad associations for me. Hmm. But I feel um, uh, I, I didn't perhaps understand screenplay writing. I was learning on the job. Um, my friends Ismail Merchant and James Ivey really wanted me to write a screenplay and gave me that chance. Um, I didn't understand as much about screenwriting as I do today, and I still don't understand a lot of things about screenwriting. <laughs> um, and I, and so, you know, there were some wonderful performances, you know, Ray Fiennes, Hiroyuki Sanada, um, you know, Natasha Richardson, Vanessa Redgrave, Lynn Redgrave, great performances, beautifully shot, um, but uh, you don't have a screenplay that's quite right. It's not, no, nothing's going to work. And I, you know, I, I take full responsibility for that. Um, also, I don't know. I think my approach perhaps wasn't, I, I think quite, I, th- I think that the interesting thing I've discovered is that if you're a screenwriter, you, you, got, to, you got to hit a kind of an interesting balance between being open to collaboration, you know, open to mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, you, you're working as part of a team, creative team, but at the same time, you can't be too open. Yeah, I think you've got to always put your cards firmly on the table artistically and argue for the things that you think are really important. And actually to not do that is, is is reneging on a crucial responsibility, I think. So to be too flexible and saying, Oh, all right, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's let's just do go with that. Um, I sometimes did that too much, I think. Um hmm. uh you know, I was bending, not, not to ideas coming from James Ivory, but, you know, to just other people, you know. <laughs> and um, I, I think perhaps I got over-enthusiastic about the idea that, you know, a screenplay is a collaborative thing. It is a collaborative thing, but it has to be a really disciplined kind of collaboration. You know, you, you, there are moments when you've got to be really pig-headed, um, and there are moments when you have to be egoless. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, creative process, I think.
2: Hmm. How did you like? What did you learn about screenwriting? I suppose that you didn't necessarily know then, beyond the the understanding that you had to be big headed. Like what <laughs> about the real process of it and the structuring of it evolved for you?
1: Well, I mean, I'm 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 still somebody learning. I mean, I you know, I I'm aware because I think I know a hell of a lot about writing novels, and I know how I would agree that that makes me aware of how little I know about screenwriting. (laughs) Um, But I would say, I mean, and and I'm sure, you know, much more experienced screenwriters could could contradict me on this, but I think there are are many things that maybe movies can't do quite as well as Mm -hmm. uh, stories written on the page. And one of the, I mean, if a story has a big time span, right? um, You see, I'm used to telling stories through memory as a novelist. Yes, you're going back through decades, um, you're thinking back to the characters when they were young, when they're middle-aged, and so on. Um, ranging around too much like that in a movie is difficult. For a start you know, there's this very practical problem. Do you, do you have to have different actors representing the same character? And once again, people might disagree with me, but I've never, ever seen that work a 100 percent. sometimes it works better than others but you know when you have two or three different actors playing the same character you never quite fully believe it you have to just suspend disbelief like you do you know in the in, in the theater or whatever you accept that that's part of the form but it does something to the emotional impact it's muted because of that and also if the action isn't unfolding in real time in front of you if too much of it is in the past which tends to work well on the stage and it works well in novels. I think in the cinema, I, I think stories do have to kind of unravel in front of the viewer, you know. Of course, you have to have things in the past as well. But um, And in particular, I think cinema struggles with memory, like personal memory. It, it doesn't depict personal memory, the textures of personal memory, nearly as well as stories that are told on the page. However, I think cinema is very good at depicting how societal memory is constructed, you, know, you, you can hmm. see people discussing what the hell happened there, like, like you know, like typical courtroom scenes. Are that uh, you know, that that they're about people deciding what the official version should be. You know, going forward uh, out of all these contradictory uh, accounts. You know, um, but you don't have to have a formal thing like that. You know, cinema is very good at having people exchange things, exchange views about somebody like at the end of our movie i mean they're talking about a person who's died and they're trying to piece together what will be the legacy what will be the how will do we remember this person what's the official version amongst us of how this person lived what he did was he a success was he a failure you know what credit does he deserve i think cinema is very strong at doing that showing us how societal memory community memory is put together in real time in front of us hmm
2: I also think of uh, your decision to essentially cut the voiceover from Ikiru, which wouldn't necessarily be the choice I would expect a novelist adapting the movie to make, because narration is a much bigger part of literary fiction. Um, but I think it it is a good example of making what I felt was a smart cinematic choice.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes really love voiceovers in, in cinema, yeah. you know, um, I'm not I'm not dogmatic about that. I have a bit of a problem about omniscient narration, whether <laughs> whether it's in books or or whether it's in film. If I, if there's a narrator's voice, I want to know who it is. You know, I want to I I want to know I want to be able to associate it with one of the characters. I mean, that, that, okay, that that's just me. Um, uh, and then I'm in the position of then it becomes interesting. There are all kinds of dimensions to that narration. You know, it, how much of it is self-deception? You know, how much is this person unreliable? Now, what's the relationship between what the narrator says and what you're seeing? You know, and there's a gap there. Is there a tension there? Then it becomes interesting. I don't really like the kind of the kind of the godlike voice that you get in the in the original Carousel. Yeah. Um, so I that was one of my first decisions. I was going to do without that. But I also also wanted to go into the thing through the eyes of of a young person from outside of that world. Um, to some extent, he should be our second protagonist. You know, he he starts the film for us and finishes the film for us. I I didn't want a, a narrator. You know, um, but I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know some some of my favorite movies have got 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 narrators. You know, I, I mm-hmm. love those kind of film noir, the Double Indemnity of course, kind, yes. of, <laughs> kind of that that kind of voice that runs through it. You know, the that hardboiled voice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think uh, one of your co-nominees, uh, Sarah Pauly, has a really interesting narrator with women talking, and another adjustment from the book from the source material, but um yeah, very very movie by movie
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's a it's a wonderful film and it's a wonderful screenplay you
2: know? yeah
1: it, it's it's one of those yeah, I mean, you know, I'm amazed to find myself on a platform with with people like that yeah you know, it, it, it's it, It's kind of strange and wonderful. I was
2: saddened to learn of a recent uh, FX decision to um, not move forward with the Never Let Me Go adaptation that they were working on. I'm not sure what your level level of involvement was with that one. Um, But I am, you know, generally interested in how you think about adaptations of your own work, the level of involvement uh, you want. Obviously you are associated with Merchant Ivory because of Remains of the Day, which you did not adapt yourself, but, um, which was adapted to great uh, success. Um, so, looking, I suppose that this one is an example um this new this f x show that's not going forward um what was your experience with that um and and how do you like to think of your work reaching the screen?
1: Well, I was very disappointed i mean that that only happened about a week ago that um, yep. because it had been green lighted there was a pilot that had been shot and uh, it was green lighted and then it just crashed but um but, I have to say that that wasn't an adaptation of my novel um Mm. Yeah, you know, there there was a searchlight movie. Um, yes, of course, made in 2010 with Kerry Mulligan, Keira Knightley, Andrew Garfield, um, uh, Andrea Riceboro. Um yeah. uh, and I thought it was a superb movie, and that, that is a faithful, you know, fairly accurate adaptation of my novel. Um, the FX series was going to be like a like an adjacent story. Mm-hmm. You know, the the parallel would be, I guess, the Fargo TV series. And the relationship mm. to the com brothers, yeah. And there was, there's a very talented uh, young writer called Melissa Iqbal who was working on it here. Um, so I was I was really sorry for her that that it's not going to work. I found this idea really interesting, um, and you know I have various other things in development at the moment. You know adaptations. You know I noticed Guillermo del Toro went and announced uh, recently, in, in uh, uh, that we you know we were. Work, working together on an animation version yep. of one of my books, Buried Giant. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm allowed to mention that too now. <laughs> You but are, There, you there are. are various <laughs> things. And, and, and Sony have, have bought the, the rights to another book of mine, Clara and the Sun. I have a lot of things in development at the moment. My attitude is that perhaps I'm in a privileged position in that my books are pretty well known in their own right. And so I feel I can afford to say you know, when people take that material, they should take it somewhere different. It should be slightly different. The the story should evolve. Um, you know, don't just translate it like you're translating it into into French or German or something, you know. Just do something, bring something different to it. Because for me, I mean it it, it, it feels like a great thing. I mean, if it, it feels like we've had stories that are passed through the generations, you know, like, like myths and fairy tales. Um even like what we call genre in books and in cinema i mean it's 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 really we're talking about you know a certain kind of story that just gets told in different variations all the time this is one of the really important things about storytelling i was i was saying to you at the beginning i just think all the time about stories and how they work i, I to me it would be a great honor if i could be part of that chain if something i i put in there what's taken up and it evolved into something slightly different and you know, it's almost like the old oral tradition of people telling that story and it changes you know, from campfire to campfire, from generation mm-hmm. to generation. These days that process occurs, I think, often when something gets adapted. You know, yes. maybe a movie gets remade, maybe a book gets turned into a movie or T V series. Um I think this is a really important dynamic process in storytelling. It's how we it's how we keep our stories updated and relevant to the things that we care about and feel deeply about. You know, it's it's it, I think it's a really important part of what we do as people. Um so yeah, there might be a part of me that says, "Oh, no, please don't mess up my book," you know. <laughs> but but when I take a broader perspective on it, I think Look, you know, your responsibility—you you have to own this material. You know, don't, don't, you know, just forget—you know, just forget the, the fact that I'm hanging around. You know, um, you take it and try and shape it into something, something you know, new and fresh, and something that means something to you. Um, and of course, you know, many of the greatest films in history—they are adaptations, but often they're not particularly faithful adaptations to the mm-hmm. original material. And I think that's fine. You know, that's us moving forward. That's us having a conversation with ourselves, and and that's why you know books and cinema is important to us.
2: So, if you're adapting an Ishiguro novel, give it the living treatment.
1: <laughs> Effectively, <laughs> the, living, the living treatment is is relatively faithful, I'd say. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's you can, true. <laughs> you know, I, I would I would encourage people to be, you know, if they want to. You know, yeah. be more radical. I mean, the questions, the important questions aren't how faithful is something to to the book it's based on. The important questions are, yeah, I mean, does it work? Is it sentimental? Does it contain something you could call the truth? Yeah, is there a vision there that's honest? And it's not basically emotional manipulation. And for me, a really important thing is, would it linger in the mind? Long after people have experienced it, for me that that is such an important thing. I mean, it might just be something about me, but hmm. you know, uh, and it's partly because I, I like I like songs, and I, I started off as a songwriter. But I think that that longevity of effect is something really really important. Um, it, yes, it's of course it's important to hold people's attention while the movie is playing on the screen or when people are reading the book and there's all kinds of tricks you know that that you can you can bring into use to to ensure that their attention doesn't wander but can you can you make that work become something that haunts people that becomes a part of their lives that in years to come when they're going through something in life they bring to mind that that movie or that book again and think they think yes this this helps me to articulate what i'm feeling I, mean, I think this is a really important thing for me
0: that does it for today's episode we'll be back on thursday with our regular roundtable conversation in the meantime find us on twitter and instagram at vf awards insider and on our own i'm katie rich and david
2: david canfield 97
0: our editor and producer as always is brett fuchs